Our scripture reading this morning is found in the first epistle of Paul to Timothy in the New Testament, 1 Timothy, and we will be reading Paul's letter in its entirety. Hear now God's word. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior and Christ Jesus our hope, unto Timothy, my true child in faith, grace, mercy, peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I exhorted thee to tarry at Ephesus when I was going into Macedonia, that thou mightest charge certain men not to teach a different doctrine, neither to give heed to fables and endless genealogies which minister questions rather than a dispensation of God which is in faith, so do I now. But the end of the charge is love out of a pure heart and a good conscience and faith unfeigned, from which things some having swerved have turned aside unto vain talking, desiring to be teachers of the law, though they understand neither what they say nor whereof they confidently affirm. But we know that the law is good if a man use it lawfully, as knowing this, that law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and unruly, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for abusers of themselves with men, for men-stealers, for liars, for false swearers, and if there be any other thing contrary to sound doctrine, according to the gospel of the glory of the blessed God which was committed to my trust. I thank him that enabled me, even Christ Jesus our Lord, for that he counted me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though I was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious, howbeit I obtained mercy, because I did it ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord abounded exceedingly with faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. Faithful is the saying, worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the chief. Howbeit for this cause I obtain mercy, that in me as chief might Jesus Christ show forth all his long suffering for an example of them that should thereafter believe on him unto eternal life. Now unto the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I commit unto thee, my child Timothy, according to the prophecies which led the way to thee, that by them thou mayest war the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience, which some, having thrust from them, made shipwreck concerning the faith, of whom is Hymaeus and Alexander, whom I delivered unto Satan, that they might be taught not to blaspheme. I exhort, therefore, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings be made for all men, for kings and all that are in high place, that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and gravity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who would have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, one mediator also between God and men, himself a man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all, the testimony to be born in its own times, Whereunto I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I speak the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. 
I desire, therefore, that men pray in every place, lifting up holy hands without wrath and disputing. In like manner, that women adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefastness and sobriety, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly raiment, but which becomes women professing godliness through good works. Let a woman learn in quietness with all subjection. But I permit not a woman to teach, nor to have dominion over a man, but to be in quietness. For Adam was first formed, then Eve, and Adam was not beguiled, but the woman being beguiled hath fallen into transgression. But she shall be saved through her childbearing, if they continue in faith and love, and sanctification with sobriety. Faithful is the saying, if a man seeks the office of a bishop, he desires a good work. The bishop, therefore, must be without reproach. The husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, orderly, given to hospitality, apt to teach, no brawler, no striker, but gentle, not contentious, no lover of money, one that rules well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. But if a man knows not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being puffed up he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must have a good testimony from them that are without, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Deacons in like manner must be grave, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy of filthy lucre, holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. And let these also first be proved, then let them serve as deacons, if they be blameless. Women in like manner must be grave, not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things. Let deacons be husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own houses well. For they that have served well as deacons gain to themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. These things write I unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly, but if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how men ought to behave themselves in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was manifested in the flesh, justified by the Spirit, seen of angels, preached among the nations, believed on in the world, received up in glory. But the Spirit saith expressly that in later times some shall fall away from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons through the hypocrisy of men that speak lies, branded in their own conscience as with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats which God created to be received with thanksgiving by them that believe and know the truth. For every creation of God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is set apart through the word of God in prayer. If you put the brethren in mind of these things, thou shalt be a good minister of Christ Jesus, nourished in the words of faith and the good doctrine which thou hast followed until now. But refuse profane and old wives' fables, and exercise thyself unto godliness. For bodily exercise is profitable for a little, but godliness is profitable for all things, having promise of the life which now is, and of that which is to come. Faithful is the saying, and worthy of all acceptation. For to this end we labor and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, 
especially of them that believe. These things command and teach. Let no man despise thy youth, but be an example to them that believe in word, in manner of life, in love, in faith, in purity. Till I come, give heed to reading, to exhortation, to teaching. Neglect not the gift that is in thee, which was given thee by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. Be diligent in these things. Give thyself wholly to them, that thy progress may be manifest unto all. Take heed to thyself and to thy teaching. Continue in these things, for in doing this thou shalt save both thyself and them that hear thee. Rebuke not an elder, but exhort him as a father, the younger men as brethren, the older women as mothers, the younger as sisters in all purity. Honor widows that are widows indeed, but if any widow hath children or grandchildren, let them learn first to show piety towards their own family and to requite their parents, for this is acceptable in the sight of God. Now she that is a widow indeed and desolate hath her hope set on God and continueth in supplications and prayers night and day, but she that giveth herself to pleasure is dead while she liveth. These things also command that they may be without reproach. But if any provideth not for his own, and especially his own household, he hath denied the faith, and is worse than an unbeliever. Let none be enrolled as a widow under threescore years old, having been the wife of one man, well reported of for good works. If she hath brought up children, if she hath used hospitality to strangers, if she hath washed the saints' feet, if she hath relieved the afflicted, if she hath diligently followed every good work, but younger widows refuse. For when they have waxed wanton against Christ, they desire to marry, having condemnation because they have rejected their first pledge. And withal, they learn also to be idle, going about from house to house, and not only idle, but tattlers also, and busybodies, speaking things which they ought not. I desire, therefore, that the younger widows marry, bear children, rule the household, Give no occasion to the adversary for reviling, for already some are turned aside after Satan. If any woman that believeth hath widows, let her relieve them, and let not the church be burdened, that it may relieve them that are widows indeed. Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and teaching. For the scripture says, Thou shalt not muzzle the ox when he treads out the corn, and the laborer is worthy of his hire. Against an elder receive not an accusation except at the mouth of two or three witnesses. Them that sin reprove in the sight of all, that the rest also may be in fear. I charge thee in the sight of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels that thou observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing by partiality. Lay hands hastily on no man, Neither be partaker of other men's sins. Keep thyself pure. Be no longer a drinker of water, but use a little wine for thy stomach's sake and thine often infirmities. Some men's sins are evident going before unto judgment, and some men also they follow after. In like manner also there are good works that are evident, and such as are otherwise cannot be hid. Let as many as are servants under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, that the name of God and the doctrine be not blasphemed. 
And they that have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but let them serve them the rather because they that partake of the benefit are believing and beloved. These things teach and exhort. If any man teaches a different doctrine and consents not to sound words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, he is puffed up, knowing nothing, but doting about questions and disputes of words, whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, evil surmisings, wranglings of men corrupted in mind and bereft of the truth, supposing that godliness is a way of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, for neither can we carry anything out. But having food and covering, we shall therewith be content. But they that are minded to be rich fall into a temptation and a snare and many foolish and hurtful lusts, such as drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, which some reaching after have been led astray from the faith and have pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But thou, O man of God, flee these things. Follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Lay hold on life eternal whereunto thou wast called and didst confess the good confession in the sight of many witnesses. I charge thee in the sight of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who before Pontius Pilate witnessed the good confession, that thou keep the commandment without spot, without reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which in its own times he shall show, who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who only hath immortality, dwelling in light unapproachable, whom no man hath seen nor can see, to whom be honor and power eternal. Amen. Charge them that are rich in this present world that they be not high-minded, nor have their hopes set on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who gives us richly all things to enjoy, that they do good, that they be rich in good works, that they be ready to distribute, willing to communicate, laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come, that they may lay hold on the life which is life indeed. O Timothy, guard that which is committed unto thee, turning away from the profane babblings and oppositions of that knowledge which is falsely so called, which some professing have erred concerning the faith. Grace be with you. And thus far, the reading of God's Word. I suppose I need to disarm you at the outset and assure you I'm not going to preach on the entire book of 1 Timothy this morning. We will not go verse by verse and expound and, and, and apply it. Uh, we're running late enough as it is in our worship service this morning. And in fact, um, in one sense, the sermon might turn out to be a rather short one. It's what I call an odds and ends sermon. You know, we're entirely accustomed, I think, in our own culture to getting a variety of different things in small quantities packaged or thrown together uh, to make a larger and more complete unit. We see that kind of thing from pick-and-save stores to having dinner from leftovers, right? <clears throat> Take a little bit of this and a little bit of that, and we put it together, and then we have the, the whole thing. Now, I've never done this before. Uh, but today I want to offer a sermon somewhat like that, although I hope you have a better attitude toward it than you do toward leftovers. 
Um, I want to touch on a large variety of small subjects without one sustained argument or one sustained thesis throughout the sermon. And so if you want, you won't embarrass me if you call it, well, that was the odds and ends sermon that we got that week. Uh, every item that I want to mention this morning has its own importance, um, but not everyone would call for a complete and sustained uh, sermon treatment. Though it's an odds and ends sermon, there is a pervasive theme or concern here, and that's why I read the entirety of 1 Timothy to you. I want to talk about a variety of smaller subjects which, although they are not part of a single thesis or a single train of thought, they are interrelated by a common theme, or better, a common concern, and namely a concern for the conduct of our congregation at church and in connection with the programs of the church. This is the month in which our annual congregational meeting comes up, uh, the last Lord's Day this month, and we will expect all of you faithfully to be there. And it's appropriate, I think, at this time to give some reflection to our church, to our church as such, not just to the church in general, but specifically to our own congregation. And so today I want to address a variety of matters pertaining to the conduct uh, of our church uh, and to our conduct in relationship to the church or congregation. Next week, I'm, Lord willing, going to address you on the subject of church leaders, especially qualifications for office, since we're going to be having elections at our annual meeting. And the week following, Lord willing, I'd like to address you about church finances, what you might call Dr. Bonson's annual tithing sermon because we do need to address that. But today I would like to take a variety of things, all related to the life and conduct of our congregation. And the example, I think, in the, the warrant for doing that sort of thing is precisely the entirety of 1 Timothy. We could also have read 2 Timothy or Titus, as a matter of fact. Admittedly, our focus upon the church, and our focus today upon the life and conduct of the church, is out of step with the modern age and out of step with the uh, modern mentality among most Christians. The corporate side of uh, Christian experience is either ignored or subordinated by most people today. Uh, the church is not looked upon as something that's a subject worthy of important reflection and serious submission in our day and age. And so living in the day that we do, and I think especially living where we do as Christians, uh, you know, the casualness, uh, the informality of Southern California in particular, the idea that we should stop and think about the orderliness of the church and, and our conduct at church and our conduct with respect to the affairs and programs of the church or the leaders of the church or the members of the church, just is, I mean, it's, it's not as though we should give a little bit of attention to that and, and uh, it's subordinated down to position 98, 99 or so on the list, it's that that doesn't even come into mind for Christians in our day and age. But I think for just that reason, the book of 1 Timothy is something of a nominally. Maybe the book of 1 Timothy is really an embarrassment to the modern indifference to the affairs of the corporate congregation as such. The church and its conduct uh, was something that weighed heavily upon Paul's heart, especially toward the end of his life in ministry when these pastoral epistles were written. Now, you might think that if um, <clears throat> Paul were like our modern uh, Christian world, then when he, get to the end of, when he got to the end of his life, what would be weighing heavily upon him would be things like um, 
uh, repeating the gospel or things having to do with evangelism and church growth or uh, whatever it may be, but it certainly would not have been the orderliness and corporate affairs of the church, and yet that's what Paul wrote about. As Paul sees himself, and I think looking forward to the day when he would be with Jesus Christ, he's concerned for the church on earth and how it will conduct its affairs and how it will continue after he is gone. And so he writes what everyone acknowledges are pastoral epistles. He writes to pastors about the work of the pastorate within the church of Jesus Christ. Why did Paul write 1 Timothy? I wonder when we were reading through this long scripture reading this morning if you caught that. Every once in a while a book of the Bible will explicitly state its reason for existence, why the author put time into penning it. And in 1 Timothy 3, you'll notice in verses 14 and 15, Paul's declaration as to why he's writing this epistle. It says, These things write I unto thee, hoping to come to thee shortly. But if I tarry long, I'm writing these things that you may know how men ought to conduct themselves in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Paul states very clearly, I'm writing because I want you to know, Timothy, how people ought to behave or conduct or carry themselves, you could translate it, with respect to the church. What should be their attitude? What should be their posture? What should be their, um, their interaction? What should be their behavior? How should we respond to the church? And how should we respond in church? Or if you will, at church? And so Paul, since Timothy is a young, or younger pastor anyway, who was stationed at Ephesus, written instructions about his work as the shepherd and leader in the congregation. He writes to Timothy about the methods and the procedures which should be followed in the congregation, uh, the congregation that uh, Timothy's responsible for. It's Christ speaking through Paul, who speaks to his own body and bride, the church, and he wants the church to have guidance in its task. He wants it to have an orderly organization and to challenge it to fulfill its ministry in a prosperous and a God-glorifying fashion. This may surprise you, but the Bible would have us to believe that the way in which we conduct our affairs of the church is something God will look into. God is either glorified or not glorified. At one point, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, let everything be done in an orderly and decent fashion. Everything. He doesn't just throw it up to, well, you know, let's just see how it gets done, you know, come as come may. It doesn't happen that way in the church, or, well, it oughtn't to happen that way in the church. Jesus is concerned that his body, his bride, behave in a proper way. And that isn't just proper in the sense that we don't come to church and slap each other or insult each other. Not just in the real obvious moral sense that we behave in a correct way, but the way in which we conduct our affairs and the way we look upon the church and relate to the church and, and interact in the church should be God-glorifying. Just notice some of the issues that Paul touches upon in 1 Timothy before I touch on some issues in our own congregation. In chapter 1, the first uh, 11 verses, Paul tells Timothy, you need to refute and to silence false teachers in the church. At verses 18, 19, and 20, a pastoral charge is given to Timothy, and it's emphasized in light of the reality of excommunication. Paul says, I've turned over these two who have blasphemed to Satan, which is Paul's language for excommunication, 1 Corinthians 5, if you want to do some reading on that. 
And Paul is exhorting Timothy, fulfill your charge because that is the threat. The people are turned over to Satan's domain. We have churches today that have never seen an excommunication. I, I find that hard to believe. Maybe they're more sanctified than we are, but I doubt it. In chapter 2, verses 1 to 8, extensive instructions about public prayer in the congregation. Verses 9 to 15, Paul talks about the dress of women at church in particular, but there are general applications too. And he talks about the conduct of women at church. And what does he say? Be quiet. We don't live in a day and age that wants to hear that. Paul says, let the women be quiet. They can learn in subjection. They aren't to have dominion over a man. In chapter 3, verses 1 to 13, Paul lays out extensive qualifications for church office, for the elders and for the deacons. I will preach on that next Lord's Day. In chapter 4, beginning at the 6th verse, the character of a faithful pastor and the work of a faithful pastor is spoken of. Press that good doctrine that you have, Paul tells him. In verse 12, have an exemplary lifestyle as the pastor. In verses 13 and 14, make sure you give attention to scripture reading and to your own personal gifts that were acknowledged by the presbytery. In verse 16, we're told that he's to pay attention to himself and to his teaching for his own salvation and that of his hearers. In chapter 5, this is a chapter that is really out of step with modern Christianity because it talks about discipline within the congregation. Timothy is told how he is to exhort rather than rebuke certain people in the congregation, how he's to speak to them. Most pastors today do not want to speak anything negative lest they step on toes. They cut off contributions. They see attendance fall. We can't be successful if we tell people things they don't want to hear. Timothy is told you are to do this thing and here's how you're to do it. A long list of instructions. Have you ever studied? I still haven't got it mastered. There are some really unusual things, but in that section on widows, how the church is supposed to respond to widows. We never discuss that. Do we take care of our widows? Are we doing what this passage says? The payment of elders. Pardon me, I'm an elder and I, I get paid, uh, but it's in God's word. I've got to tell you that. There's, there's a certain um, attitude in God's word about the payment of elders and about their work and how they aren't to be falsely maligned. And you better be very sure before you speak against one of your leaders. Uh, there's instructions about public rebukes. Well, I can go on and on. I told you I wouldn't preach on the whole book, but there's a little bit of a summary of what Paul does in this book, showing and, in, uh, and indicating that the affairs of the corporate body, the church, the congregation, are very important in the eyes of God. Jesus Christ wants us to be orderly. He wants us to be disciplined. He wants us to do things in a God-glorifying way. And so I'd like to take just a few moments, a few odds and ends here. I don't speak with the inspiration of Paul, obviously, to a younger Timothy, but I do speak with a genuine pastoral concern, and I hope a sanctified um, evaluation of the things that are happening in our congregation that, well, all of us need to think a little bit more about, be a little more serious about I could spend some time. I thought perhaps this morning I should ease into this by commending you for a number of things as a congregation. But then I said, no, I'm just doing that because I don't want you to get mad at me. <laughs> and so there are plenty of things to commend, but that's for another sermon. Today I'd like to talk about a few things we need to improve in terms of our conduct as a church. 
And so a um, little, uh, little bit of leftovers from a number of places. This sermon wasn't devised for any one individual, although I'm sure many of you will think, well, he's thinking of me when he says this. Well, I, I really am not. And to the degree that I could, I've resisted the temptation to do so. So I need to launch into this. I need to speak to you with the pastoral heart and compassion about the weak reasons that we often are given for your absence from Lord's Day worship. I know that there are reasons why we cannot make it to worship service sometimes. <clears throat> breaks down. Obviously, in the providence of God, we handle those things. But there are a lot of reasons why we don't come to church that are not pleasing to God. And I'm not going to be faithful to you if I pretend otherwise. I probably am not faithful enough that when you people tell me why you're not at church, and sometimes I think you can't decode it, but when you, de when you tell me why you're not at church, and I realize that that's really less than a sanctified, godly reason not to be here, um, I try to smooth the situation over when I probably should rebuke you and say, come on, brother, come on, sister. Jesus expects more of us than that. He gave his life for us. We can certainly give him Sunday morning. You're sleeping in. You're taking care of chores. You're thinking that you just <clears throat> had too much to do that day. Does not. It's not just that Greg Bonson or Tony Curto or the session or the deacons or somebody in this church have a personality or a certain expectation you're not living up to. You're not living up to the Lord's expectation. If you don't do things my way, that's irrelevant. You don't do things in the way that Jesus wants. It's very important. And all of us need to stop and think. This one little leftover thought here for you. The next time you get ready to miss church, ask yourself, would I miss work for this reason? Would I go to my employer and say, oh, well, I slept in today. You know, I was up late last night. You have to understand I needed some rest. Would you tell your employer, well, I had chores to, to take care of? Or, well, we, my family was having a, a birthday party for my niece, and, and we needed to go to that. You wouldn't dare tell an employer something like that. You know you wouldn't, because you know better. And yet your employer is subordinate in authority to the Lord Jesus Christ and will give an account to the Lord Jesus Christ. If you wouldn't say that to your employer, why would you say that to Jesus? I think also in terms of our coming to church, we should all be thinking more about preparation of our hearts for the worship service. Our confession of faith, especially in the larger catechism, expounding on the duties of the fourth commandment to honor the Sabbath day, to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy, tells us that one of the things that that means is that we are to prepare our hearts for that day. We are to prepare to come to church. We do not prepare to come to church when we purposely stay up so late on Saturday or so busy on Saturday that we come to church dragging and drowsy. And yes, even our congregation, we have people that tend to doze off during the sermon. Um, I know you have to have an opportunity to say that's my fault, you know, as a preacher, that that happens. But I need to say to you that regardless of my oratorical skill or lack thereof, you come here to hear Jesus speak to you. Through a weak sermon, almost always, I know, but... You need to pay attention to what Jesus says. And you can't do that if you don't prepare, even in the physical sense, that you don't stay up so late on Saturday night that you're drowsy. But more than just the physical preparation, 
how many of us, uh, we try to publish in our communique uh, the title of the sermon and the text and so forth, how many of us on Saturday evening make a point of opening our Bible and reading the text for the next day and say, God, prepare my heart to hear what you're going to tell me in this text? I think you all know that that would help. You know you get a lot more out of it. You'd be a lot more serious about this, and you wouldn't just be putting in time. I'm afraid often we come to church and we say, well, it's church time. I've got to put in this religious time, go through this ritual or this drill or something. Instead of saying, no, my life is oriented toward the worship of God. So on Saturday, I prepare for it. I don't stay up late. I don't make myself you know, uh, unable to pay attention. And I, um, and I ask God in prayer and in Bible reading to prepare me for that. The next thing down the list, arriving on time. We need to arrive on time at church. I guess that's, that's the, the sort of thing that rarely gets said because everybody assumes we know it. But I need to say that to you because some of you make a habit of coming late. And again, I'm resisting thinking about who that is. Don't worry about your toes being stepped on. But if it applies to you, listen. Jesus wants you here on time. If you run out of gas or if your car breaks down or if you're sick, fine. But that isn't usually the reason we're late to church. We're late to church because we do other things instead of preparing on time. We wait too long to get ready in the morning. If you were late to work repeatedly... I think you know that your employer would take it as a sign of disrespect and not really being committed to the job. We usually aren't late to the things we're excited about. Isn't that right? Get excited about worshiping. Get excited about coming on time, being here. And then while you're here, the time in which the uh, piano begins to play is a time in which we need to quiet down, especially in the providence of God. We have a room to worship in, and I thank him for that. But this room is a noisy room. Let's face that. Not a whole lot of muffling of the noise in here. And I don't want to cut down on your fellowship, but when the time comes to worship, we need to stop talking. We need to come in quietly and to sit down and read or pray or meditate and get ready for the worship service. And you say, well, how, how do I know when to stop talking and socializing and to start being quiet? Well, it's very easy. When you hear the piano start, you know, that's going to be a few moments, unless the session has longer business than uh, usual. It's going to be a few moments, and we're going to begin the worship service. We should really work on being quiet and realizing that as we enter into worship, we don't enter into a, a place that's holy ground because of its location. But we do come, in a sense, upon holy ground because we're entering into the presence of God to offer this worship to him. God no longer requires us to come to a particular place where his courts are found. Wherever his people are found, he's there. But when his people gather to worship him, we need to remember the most important thing is not that we are here, although I want you here. The most important thing is that Christ is here. And so we enter into worship. <clears throat> in a spirit of sobriety, in a spirit of submission, in a spirit of adoration. When prayer requests are made, another little tidbit here, I wonder how many of us take notes. It would help us greatly during the week to pray for one another if we had a list of those things that are being mentioned. 
Um, it, I guess it's a little unusual in our congregation to, uh, that our congregation does this, where we take prayer requests. But that's one of the reasons we gather together as God's people, to share with each other and to praise God and to petition God for each other. Do we really take that seriously if we just let others do it? Well, there's an elder up there taking it down. You take it down. You go home and have that upon your heart. You pray about it all week long. The activity of our children during worship service is something, well, I'm going to end up offending everybody, aren't I? We do need to talk about our children and what they ought to be doing in worship. Most of our um, parents in this congregation have, I think, a very good attitude about wanting their children to be here and to get used to going to church. But you see, we need to teach our children not just to be here like lumps on a log. Uh, That's no more sanctifying than sitting in an oven will make you a cookie. You will not become a good Christian just because you sit in church. And so what can you do? Well, and what can I do as a pastor, too? I, I, I know my responsibility to minister more from this pulpit to our young people, and I try to refer to them from time to time in my sermons. But you as parents need to be guiding your young people. Maybe that means having a church notebook. I've suggested this to some of our families. And while you're listening to the sermon, maybe on the level of your child, if you have a third grader or a tenth grader, if that's what it is, maybe you need to be writing questions and then giving that to your young person and say, no, try to you know, come up with the answer to this question. Or at least have your young people, maybe they're not even to the place where they can write out sentences, have them draw a picture of what the pastor's talking about. Maybe you have even more creative and better ideas than I do, but what I'm saying is engage your young people in the worship service. This is not a time... For them to be daydreaming. It's not a time for them to be sleeping. Do you daydream? Well, maybe I shouldn't have asked that. Do you sleep? Maybe I shouldn't ask that. Children have to be dealt with not as adults. I know that. I praise God for that passage that tells us that our Heavenly Father knows our frame. He pities us as children. He knows what we're made of, and he knows what we're capable of. And you need to know what your children are capable of. I'm not today telling you you need to have little four-year-olds come in and act like 40-year-olds. But I am saying we need to engage our children in the worship service and not just have them there somehow. When we sing praises to God, we should sing intelligently. By that I mean we ought to be paying attention to what we're saying. Have you ever had an occasion where you saw something in a, in a verse and you didn't sing because you just weren't sure what it meant? Or maybe you didn't think you agreed with it? Even in the Trinity hymnal, which I think is an excellent hymnal, I have a couple of places where I'm just not so sure I agree with what's being said there. You know, the mystic sweet communion of uh, the church with those whose rest is one has always been one that makes me a little uneasy. I don't feel mystic sweet communion with dead Christians. So, and, and you may tell me I'm not reading that, that properly, and perhaps I'm not. But what I'm saying is, if I sing intelligently, when I come to something like that, I don't just don't go flying over it and say, well, gee, I like the melody, so I'll just keep writing. No, I've got to, th- what is this? If you sing intelligently, I dare say it's going to bring you to tears sometimes when you read and sing these hymns. And it's going to convict you of sin, and it's going to make you praise God. Believe it or not, we don't have hymns just to take up space in the worship service. Kind of like, well, we need a variety of things to do so that people don't get bored. We have hymns because they play a very important role in the way God exhorts us and draws us into his presence and teaches us to worship him. So sing intelligently.
And when the pastor prays, pray with him. This is a tough one, especially if you've been up late on Saturday night. Pastoral prayer is probably the, the least percentage of involvement in the worship service. I would have to say it comes at the time of the pastoral prayer. Because people are not thinking about the prayer. They're just waiting for him to say amen. Or if they are thinking, it's kind of like in and out. They're also thinking about, well, the Rams are playing this afternoon, or I've got to get this done, or maybe dozing. We don't come here corporately to pray so that we just kind of zone out when the pastor does that. We need to be praying with him. And in particular, when the pastor gets done praying, we should be speaking the amen. The Lord um, didn't show that to me apart from the objective word, but I didn't really think that way till a few years ago. And I was studying that passage in 1 Corinthians that says, now when an unbeliever comes in and he hears the amen, how will he do the following? And I said, what amen? The pastor is the only one, and then we weren't at that time as a congregation singing the amen with our hymns, and I got convicted. We really need to do that. We need to sing the amen. We need to say the amen at the end of our prayers. You've been told about that every once in a while, and usually for a couple of months we'll hear a few more audible amens, but then it tends to wear down and wear down and wear down. When the pastor gets done preaching, if you believed and your heart was in that prayer, you need to say, so be it, amen. And here, maybe this is just a thumbnail guideline for you. If the person at the end of your row can't hear you say the amen, you probably don't mean it very much. Okay, so we'll, I know you'll all chuckle. The next time we have an opportunity, we'll finally hear some of those amens. But that'll be great. Our worship will be more in spirit and in truth when we do that. I'd like to say a few words about the Lord's Supper as well. Uh, some uh, you have heard in the past, because I have a, a heart that really goes out to people, the hurting people in our congregation, hurting because of heartbreak in their lives, hurting because of sin in their lives. And uh, repeatedly, occasions arise where I need to, to help believers, brothers and sisters, to see that when we tell you that we're to confess our sins and come to the Lord's table, we're not saying, don't come to the Lord's table if you have recurring sin in your life. When you come to the Lord's table, you come acknowledging that you are a sinner. And maybe even acknowledging that this week you've done it again. You've done it more times than you wish. But the attitude with which you come is that of attrition and grief over your sin. When we warn people not to come to the Lord's Supper in an unrepentant state of mind, what we mean is not that you fell into sin this week, so don't come. What we mean is that you fell into sin and you just don't care. That you sinned and you said, I love my sin more than I love the Savior. That you know that the Word of God says something and you're going contrary to it and you feel no grief about that. You say, well... You know, God has to put up with me the way I am. I mean, if you have an attitude of indifference or rebellion, outright defiance, you should not come to the Lord's Supper. That's the warning. The warning is not calculated to keep the humble from the table, as though you had to be morally perfect. Or you need to be seeing a certain measure of sanctification this week before you have the right to come to the table. And so I want to encourage you, when we come to the Lord's Supper, that you think... In that way. I mean, the reason we have the Lord's Supper is because we're sinners. 
What should happen when visitors come with you to church? You know that we do try to fence the table, as it said. We, we try to uh, see to it that those who come to the table are those who qualify to do so, not because they are morally good or meritorious, but they qualify in the sense that they really are Christians. They've publicly professed faith in Christ, and they're a member of a church somewhere. Some of you who have brought visitors to church, you know that this is not true of them, or you know that they're not a member of a church, and yet you feel the awkwardness. Should they take it? Well, when the elders go up and down the aisle, we can't always, you know, have premonitions about these things, who does and who does not. That's why it's in our uh, bulletin. We uh, tell people who can come to the table, and we try to say something every week about it. But you can help here, too. When you bring a visitor, you take it upon yourself to explain, we're going to have the Lord's Supper today. And the supper is for church members. And, um, and I'm hoping that when you see what we do, you'll want to become a church member. But at this point, you know, it is for members of the church. And you can find, it's your own personality and your own words, and with the person you're dealing with, you can find the way to say that, that is gentle and kind, but clear. You can do it much more effectively and knowledgeably than the elders can when we have, what, maybe two or three minutes to prepare, and even then don't meet all the visitors. So I would encourage you to think about the Lord's Supper in that light. When we come to our time of fellowship after we have worshipped God, a quick word about... Uh, who do you visit with? Who do you see? It's so easy for us to get used to. We have a certain circle of people that it's easy to talk to, and we make the rounds of those people. I'd really encourage you to make a point of making fellowship universal, spreading out your interest and your ability to find something to talk about with other members of the congregation. As a matter of fact, many of us don't even know all the names of the people in our congregation. Now, when God blesses us and we grow three times larger than we are now, there might be some excuse for that. But there's really no excuse for a congregation our size for us not to get to know each other, to circulate, to pay attention, and to know your leaders. Some of us aren't even sure who's all elders and who are deacons in our congregation. We need to be thinking about those things, get to know them. And now that I'm on the subject of elders and officers in the church, a passing word about um, there is no second-class uh, eldership in our congregation. You say, well, you know that. We teach that. You realize that all the elders are on the same position of authority and dignity in our congregation. And yet the fact of the matter is, um, just a few weeks ago we were talking about the possibility of expanding our sessional visit teams so that we can make more calls. Those session visits, uh, I think, are one of the, the joys, the high points of being a pastor. I, I love to come out and talk to people, to pray with them, answer their questions, try to meet their needs. It's a great time. I'd like to see us do more of it. Now, conceivably, we could have five teams going out, but then it was observed, and I think accurately. The problem is, in our congregation, I'm afraid some of you, if you did not have one of the teaching elders, if you didn't have Pastor Tony or Pastor Greg on the team, you would feel insulted, or you would feel like, well, I'm not as important as other people. Well, that, you know, that, that response does not come from whether you're important or not. That response comes from your estimation of the other elders. All the elders in this congregation have the same authority and the same dignity and the same concern and love for you. 
in the same way that neither Tony and I have talked about this on occasion. We don't want you to think of one or the other of us as subordinate to each other. I'm not the associate pastor in this congregation, and Tony's not my assistant in this congregation. We are co-pastors, and we're very comfortable with that. But some people don't see it that way, so we want to make that very clear. But it's more than just Tony and myself. I want you to see all of the elders in the point. So that they call on you. If you have a counseling need and I say, I'm going to ask Elder Jones to call on you and take care of it, you don't say, oh, I guess I'm not very important. I don't get the real pastor. He is the real pastor, as are all the others. Well, you've heard this before. I'm just reminding you. Real quickly, I want to bring this to a conclusion by asking you about your participation in the programs of the church. I am personally a little disappointed in our congregation in that our Thursday evening meeting so often is uh, not well attended. It was more well attended, better attended, um, a while ago. Uh, and that either means that we're not meeting your needs and you need to be telling us that, or, to be honest with you, I think more likely we've just become lazy, we've become uninvolved and unconcerned. Attendance is something you want to write down in your notes. What do I attend? We have supper and sing today. How many people are going to take off rather than staying here? Now, if you don't think supper and sing meets a need, I think it's a crucial one to worship God and have time to sing more than we can in the congregation. But if you don't, talk to us about that. But unless someone has objections to what we're doing, having a fellowship dinner and a time to praise God in song, I would expect that 99% of the people who are here will be there at the supper and sing. All things being equal, we may lose a couple because people are ill or something like that. But again, we have nieces who have birthday parties. You think I'm against nieces this morning. We have family sorts of things. We have a football game on TV this afternoon. Well, your mind oughtn't to be on those things. Some people would say you ought not to watch it anyway. I don't take that hard and fast line. My, my point would certainly be you shouldn't be thinking about football when it's the time to worship God. Supper and sing is far more important than whether the Rams go to the Super Bowl or a number of other things. Maybe if I mentioned them, I would uh, earn more of your indignation. Involvement in the ministry of the church, not only your attendance, but your service. How are you serving others? How are you using your gifts in this congregation? I've mentioned it last week, and I'll just touch it again briefly. Our congregation does very well, all things considered. If we graded on a curve, we'd be getting A's for involvement. But if we graded on, I think, what are Jesus standards, which are more absolute, many of you are hardly seen at all helping out in the ministry of this church. And there are so many ways of doing it. You don't have to be a speaker. You don't have to be a singer. You don't have to be an evangelist. There are a lot of really quiet, out-of-the-way things that people can do. What are you doing in the congregation? Thirdly, how are you sharing in the lives of others? Not only attendance and service, but fellowship. How have you penetrated into the life of another individual in this congregation or individuals? It's hard to do that. I've had occasion to talk with a couple of you over the last few months how, how difficult it is to get to know each other. It's so easy to come, and we have just kind of like this easy front, you know, and we go through our little Christian thing with each other. But do we really know each other and care for each other? Do we weep for each other? Do we exhort each other? Do we have the confidence to say to one another, you need to be corrected here, and to do it in charity and love? You might ask yourself this. 
Who is it in this congregation, not in my family, but who is it in this congregation, and not just Tony or Greg, who is it in this congregation who, if she or he had a real problem, I know they would call me about it? If you can't think of someone there, and that's probably a measure, to some degree, it's not infallible, to some degree, that we're still at a distance from one another. Who can you be sure trusts you enough and cares for your prayers and your exhortations and your comfort enough that you'd be called? And if you can't think of somebody, then today start developing a relationship, sharing in the lives of others, and genuine fellowship. So think about these three areas. What about my attendance level in the programs of the church? What about my service level in the ministry and outreach of this church? What about my fellowship and penetration into the lives of others? Time will not allow for us to talk about the two areas that I think we are weakest as a congregation. Uh, but you might want to put it on your prayer list and be doing some reflection in terms of the evangelism that our congregation does and the way we reach out to the poor. I think we are real high in areas that are important, doctrinal areas. Our publication is something that I praise God for, our education. But you see, the ministry of Christ's church is more than that. There are souls that are going to be lost if they don't hear the gospel. And we need to be doing more of that. I really think that. And I think we need to be doing more in terms of welfare and charitable relief to those who are not nearly as well off as we are. We enjoy a comfortable existence. And we need to be incorporating people that are not like us in that regard in our congregation. Well, I told you you were going to get odds and ends. So you got them. A rather long worship service. But I want you to pay attention to these subjects, though they are short because they pertain to our conduct at church and our conduct in relationship to the church, something to be taken to heart. Paul addressed uh, the practical and the procedural affairs of the congregation in his pastoral epistles because they are not irrelevant to our lives as Christians. Because these matters pertain to the church of Jesus Christ, they are important to us, for the church of Jesus Christ is his bride. And he wants his bride treated well. All of us do. And it is his body. And it's not to be disrespected. It's the temple of the Holy Spirit. Or to use Paul's words, it is the house of God. The pillar and ground of the truth. And for that reason, I would exhort you to take to heart these odds and ends. Let's pray. Lord, do sanctify us in our attitudes and sanctify us in our conduct with respect to the church of Jesus Christ. Oh, we thank you. We don't thank you enough, but we do truly thank you from the bottom of our hearts today that there is a church of Jesus Christ on earth, that he purchased it with his own blood, that he is the, the ruler, the head, the savior, Lord of this body, that he, by the sovereign grace of his spirit, has drawn people to himself, and made them part of his church. And he does now rule over it gloriously with authority. And we do pray that we might give greater concentration to the issues and affairs and the programs of the church, that we might give greater attendance to them, that we might seek to serve more within the church that we might incorporate more genuine fellowship into our lives, that we might reach out 
more consistently and fervently to the lost that we might extend a hand to the poor. We pray for our congregation, thanking you that you brought Covenant Community Church into existence, thanking you for its members and its leaders, for its programs, thanking you that all of this is a sign of your grace and your love, that you continue to work in this world and to work in our lives. We thank you for the good things that can be said about our congregation, and yet we confess our inadequacy, our falling short. And we pray that all of us, Lord, would give the kind of attention to the body of Christ that is truly due, that would glorify the Savior. The Covenant Community Church would become a greater gem of glory, that we might reflect more brightly the light of our Savior, Jesus Christ. That when people do come and see us, they would recognize that being in our presence, they have come into the presence of the living God. For we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.